Hey guys, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you episode 10 in the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. This week's episode is going to be what I call the melting pot episode. I'm going to be covering all of the topics that aren't large enough to have their own episode dedicated to. In addition, I'll be throwing in a couple high-yield pearls from the topics that I've already covered but forgot to include in those episodes. Now, I know I said last week that this would be the last episode in the series. Well, because of the feedback that I've been getting from you guys via email, I'm going to be doing one more episode after this one. That episode will air next Sunday and will cover OBGYN emergencies. So for those of you who are looking forward to having Zach back next week, I guess you can just think of this as an extra week of Zach brainstorming to put out super awesome content. Alright, so I'm going to start this episode off with some neurology, and then I'm going to jump around from topic to topic after we finish that. Starting with strokes, what is the first diagnostic imaging that you want to order? Good, everyone should know this. It's a CT non-contrast of the head. You do this to rule out hemorrhagic strokes. Now, let's say the patient presented with the worst headache of their life. It was maximal in intensity within 30 seconds of the headache onset. What do you think the diagnosis is? Good, so this is gonna be a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And just like with stroke, you start off with a CT non-con of the head. Now for your exam, what diagnostic test do you order if this initial CT non-con is negative for a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Good. So the answer here is a lumbar puncture. And what you're looking for is the presence of xanthrochromia, which is typically a yellow, pink, orange, discolored CSF fluid that is due to the breakdown of red blood cells. I think bilirubin is actually what gives it the discoloration. Okay, one last pearl with subarachnoid hemorrhages. What medication do you need to give these patients on your exam after you've diagnosed a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Good, they need nimodipine. In case you guys forgot, nimodipine is a calcium channel blocker, and we give it after diagnosing subarachnoid hemorrhages in order to prevent vasospasm. Okay. If a young patient comes into the ED with signs and symptoms of a stroke, there are two things that I immediately consider when taking these exams. You have to consider the possibility of a dissection, such as a vertebral artery dissection, or the possibility of a vasospasm due to drugs, such as cocaine. These aren't the only causes of strokes in the young population. For example, you can have vasculitis, you could have sickle cell disease, you could have a patent foramen ovale, etc. But those are the two causes I think of first when taking these exams. All right, let's move on to meningitis. Can anyone tell me what the empiric treatment for suspected meningitis is? So the empiric treatment actually depends on the patient's age. Pretty much every patient will get ceftriaxone, vancomycin, and steroids right off the bat. Then, if the patient is either really, really old or really, really young, 
you have to add ampicillin. Ampicillin will cover listeria, which commonly affects both neonates and the elderly. Now let's say a young adult comes in with the symptoms of meningitis, but they also have a petechial rash on their abdomen or lower extremities. What do you think is going on here? So that petechial rash is the giveaway here. This patient has Neisseria meningitis. And remember, all contacts of patients who are diagnosed with Neisseria meningitis need to get rifampin prophylactically. Now, sort of similar to meningitis, let's talk about encephalitis, specifically HSV encephalitis. This has a pretty classic presentation, usually some combination of fever, headache, confusion or altered mental status, behavioral changes, and lastly, seizures. Seizures are very common with HSV encephalitis. Now, what is the treatment for HSV encephalitis? Good, it's acyclovir. Now, let's talk about some causes of altered mental status that are very classically tested on exams. Now, I know I've mentioned this previously, but hypoglycemia is a very common cause of altered mental status. So make sure to check that blood glucose. It should be one of the first things you do when somebody comes in with altered mental status. Now, one of the most common causes of altered mental status in elderly patients are infections. Classically, this will be a UTI. However, any kind of infection can cause a delirium-like picture for your patient. So on your exam, if they give you an elderly patient who is a little bit altered, make sure to get that urinalysis. Now, let's say a 30-year-old comes in after a motor vehicle collision and they're presenting with altered mental status, shortness of breath, and a petechial rash on the chest and axilla. What is causing their symptoms? Good. This is actually pretty rare, but examiners love to test this. This is a fat embolism caused by the fracture of a long bone, such as the femur. While on the topic of broken bones, I do want to cover this very common injury. Let's say a patient presents after a fall and they're complaining of tenderness over their anatomical snuff box. Which bone is most likely fractured here? Good, so this is the scaphoid bone. Now, I'm bringing this up for a couple reasons. Number one, you probably remember from MS1 or MS2 that the scaphoid bone has a retrograde blood supply. What this means clinically is that these injuries have a high risk of osteonecrosis as a complication. Number two, these nasty little injuries don't like to show up on x-ray immediately after they occur. The combination of number one and number two leads to bad outcomes if these injuries are managed incorrectly. So let's say you x-ray the patient's wrist and it looks normal to you. What do you do next? So even with a normal x-ray, these patients still need a splint. In addition, they need follow-up in one to two weeks for a repeat x-ray. All right, let's say the vignette gives you a patient who comes in complaining of sharp chest pain. The pain is a little better when they lean forwards, and on your physical exam, you hear a friction rub. 
what is the most likely diagnosis here? Good. So this is classic for pericarditis. Now, can anyone remember the classic EKG findings for pericarditis? Good. This is diffuse ST elevation, meaning ST elevation in most leads, and diffuse PR depression. And can anyone remember the treatment for pericarditis? Good. It's ibuprofen, or really any kind of NSAID. All right, let's talk about Kawasaki's disease. There's a really great mnemonic to remember the symptoms of Kawasaki's disease. Does anyone remember it? So the mnemonic is crash and burn. Let me go through this with you guys quickly. C stands for conjunctivitis, or red eyes. R stands for rash. A stands for adenopathy, like lymphadenopathy. S stands for strawberry tongue. And H stands for swelling of the hands and feet. So that's crash. And then burn isn't spelled out with the letters. It just stands for fever lasting five days or more. So again, very quickly, conjunctivitis, rash, adenopathy, strawberry tongue, hand and feet swelling, and then a fever lasting five days or more. Now, for exam purposes, the treatment for Kawasaki disease is aspirin. Speaking of burns, let's talk about the management for burn patients. And specifically, I'm talking about fluid management. Now, think back to your surgery clerkship. Do you remember the rule of nines and the Parkland formula? Now, if you don't remember the rule of nines, I would recommend a quick Google image search. There are great diagrams out there that can explain it way faster than I can with words. The rule of nines allows you to estimate the percent total body surface area involved in a burn. Once you've estimated the surface area involved, you can use that along with the patient's weight in the Parkland formula to determine how much fluid the patient needs and how fast you want to give those fluids. The formula is the patient's weight times the surface area involved times the number four. And that gives you the volume in milliliters of how much fluid the patient needs over the first 24 hours. Now, that surface area number that you use in the formula is a whole number. Don't use the decimal. Let's say if the patient had 10% burns, you multiply by 10, not 0.1. And then also, the patient's weight is in kilograms. Now, let's do a really quick example. Let's say the patient weighs 100 kilograms and has suffered a 10% surface area total burn. 100 times 10 is 1,000, times 4 is 4,000. So the patient will need 4,000 milliliters, or 4 liters, of fluid in the first 24 hours. Now, once you've calculated the total volume of fluid that the patient needs in the first 24 hours, you need to figure out how fast to give it to this patient. You give half the total volume during the first eight hours, and then you give the other half of the total volume over the next 16 hours. So our patient would receive two liters over the first eight hours, and then another two liters over the next 16 hours. Feel free to pause, rewind, or do whatever you need to do to commit that formula to memory. All right, we're almost done here. Let's talk about trauma for a second. Specifically, I want to talk about vascular injuries. Now, 
there's a list of what are called the hard signs of vascular injury. A patient with any of these signs or symptoms needs to go to the OR. Now the list of all these signs is pretty long, but what I'm going to give you is a short list with a mnemonic to help you remember the most commonly tested ones. The mnemonic is A, B, C, D, E. A stands for active pulsatile hemorrhage. B stands for brewy, meaning the presence of a brewy. C stands for cerebral ischemia, so signs or symptoms of a stroke. D stands for distal pulses that are diminished or absent. And E stands for an expanding hematoma. A patient with any of these signs or symptoms needs to go to the OR. I'm going to go through this one more time very quickly for review. A for active pulsatile hemorrhage, B for brewy, C for cerebral ischemic symptoms, D for distal pulses absent, E for expanding hematoma. Now I want to give you one more pearl and then we're done. Most of you probably know this, but I always mix this up. Gram-positive cocci that are in clusters are staph aureus, and gram-positive cocci that are in chains are strep pneumo. You can remember this by just thinking that chain smokers are more likely to get pneumonia. And that's all I got for you this week. As always, if you guys have questions, suggestions, or any feedback, you are always welcome to reach out to me. And by the way, shout out to those listeners who have already done so. You guys are the reason that episode 11 is happening. Anyways, in case you forgot, my email is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.